welcome to the book a week podcast jointly hosted by the sept university library and the center for research on architecture and urbanism hello and uh, welcome back to yet another insightful discussion on uh, book a week podcast i'm rajeshree rajmohan practicing as a senior architect with chandramohan associates in trivandrum kerala I'm also a human rights activist, academician, and a mother of two. My research interests lie in gender and subaltern studies and documentation of settlement patterns. And today I'm delighted to have with me Dr. Ghazala Jamil, who is an assistant professor at the Center for Study of Law and Governance, Jawaharlal Nehru University. She has also held a teaching positions at Department of Social Work. University of Delhi and School of Planning and Architecture New Delhi. Her uh, recently edited uh, volume is on women's rights in India titled Women in Social Change: Vision Struggles and Persisting uh, Concerns and this was published in 2021 and I'm looking forward to reading that book. Today we'll be discussing her book which was published in 2017 by Oxford University Press. titled accumulation by segregation uh, muslim localities in delhi i read the book in uh, 2020 during the lockdown and her book here maps the landscape of discrimination in delhi's neighborhoods thus highlighting how fractured geographies are created she argues through her case studies that segregation in an urban space is produced not only by communal conflict and threat of violence but is also maintained by processes of capitalist globalization there are five case studies um, the case studies are of the five locations are the old delhi the trans yamuna cluster the taj enclave nizamuddin uh, and um, jamia nagar and uh, through these five uh, case studies which present a historical continuity in the narrative of muslims in delhi the book presents a very compelling evidence of market and the process of governance uh, employed that aid accumulation by segregation and um, only after i read the book i realized that the book cover itself is an abstraction of her ethnographic research on muslim localities in delhi so i would urge all listeners to pay a little more attention to the cover when they get the book in their hands It's a warm welcome. I'm so glad you are with me today, Professor Ghazala. And shall we begin? Thank you, Rajshri. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, to begin with, you quote also uh, German philosopher and uh, sociologist Max Horkheimer, and uh, he who emphasizes that research must have an emancipating aim, which I think uh, your book does very well. and even in the methodology it would be how i would actually begin our uh, session and in india the muslim question is uh, usually based on identity and with identity being um, as a significant other that is against a majority uh, majoritarian view or uh, it is also based on preconceived uh, religious characteristic which i have always found very problematic but in your methodology you have employed a dramaturgical view of identity would it, uh, it would be nice if you could elaborate on this as to why have you chosen to look 
And how have you chosen to look at Sentai studies so differently in terms of identity? I guess to begin with, you know, I let me start with the fact that I'm, my training is uh, in social work. So I'm a social worker. And uh, this uh, study uh, is actually based on my PhD uh, thesis, which was conducted at the Department of Social Work in Delhi University. And uh, in social work, you know, research uh, is actually seen as an intervention, which it is, you know, even outside social work. Usually the idea is that research is objective and, uh, you know, that the researchers can, you know, stand apart from their own research, etc. Whereas my own view and my own training mandated that I was, I was inserting myself into a situation, uh, examining it and thereby, you know, making an attempt, attempt to change it. So, so that's why, you know, I kind of think of research as potentially emancipatory. If the right methods are used, then uh, it can, uh, you know, actually turn around things for the better. Uh, that goes for, you know, social sciences generally per se. Coming to the question of identity, I think I was, when I began, I was very clear in my mind that when one is looking at uh, identity, one is usually, you know, thinking about more individual psychology and um, how self is constructed in relation to society, of course. But what is often forgotten is that political economic content within identity is something, uh, or what I call a material content in the identity, something that's often forgotten. And I wanted to highlight that right from the very beginning. That was something that I was very clear about, that it is about uh, essentially that religion or religious identity is not just about spirituality and culture, a culture understood in a way that it's only about, you know, certain uh, traditions and practices and so on, but it is actually about material conditions. And historically, as an institution, the importance of religion has not subsided in the, in, in, uh, I guess, history of humanity because of its material usefulness for people to make sense of and to respond to uh, evolutionary needs, so to say. So, so that's where I was coming from. Another thing about this whole, you know, emancipatory thing is to also have um, people who, who are subjects of research to actually become participants in co-creation of knowledge with the researcher so their voices are important and even if you know whatever happens after the research is finished published disseminated uh, well or not read by many people or very few people at least for the people who have participated in the process of research it adds something to their experience uh, yeah, to what they know about their own experience you also commonly said that if, if space is uh, a place with social content, then the social is also spatial. And um, you have worked extensively in all your other writings, which I had uh, had an opportunity to read up on. And you talk about essentially the spatiality of, um, of the social uh, cultures. 
And I think uh, you most of your writings are around uh, that particular theme. And I see that in this book also, where here in this book, you have the spatial practices, representation of space and representational space. And uh, they, these become the three threads, methodological, philosophical, and personal. And that is how you have scrutinized and interwoven to kind of produce a narrative of uh, Muslims in uh, Delhi. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. As a citizen myself or as an individual, if I stood in any point in, in the city and wanted from point A to go from point A to point B, I realized that it was, you know, not just a simple fact of, you know, somehow getting to do that. My identity was always already in the play, right? True. So if I wanted to ask an autowala standing at the, you know, mall road bus stand in Delhi University saying that, you know, I want to go home to Zakir Nagar and found that, uh, you know, most of them didn't want to go. And the whole construction of a point on a map is based on uh, how people perceive that point or how narrative was built about that point. And my own sense of self was always interrupted by these narratives these discourses. Uh, so yes, uh, I was very keenly aware of how one's positioning in the urban space can be of utmost importance, you know, as a child growing up in Delhi and, you know, uh, being a witness to, for example, as I also write in my book, to the anti-Sikh violence in uh, 1984 in Delhi as a child. The idea of uh, speciality of social life was something that I was always very keen, uh, keenly aware of. And I had been fascinated by maps and globes, uh, you know, from childhood. So, yes, completely on track. And uh, I, because I remember because when we had a book discussion, the same book with other students who were coming from very different cities and not very few from Delhi and everybody was from another Indian city and immediately they could connect with these three points and they said yes it's how you navigate a place which place can you go to and immediately judgments are made people would refuse to take you to a certain area though it is a public transport and uh, they, you are looked at very differently because you are from a particular locality their responses is also uh, controlled based on from where you live. So that, that was something that we really connected, perhaps all the students who are from very different uh, cities uh, in, when we were discussing your book in uh, the studio. Women know this all the time. Yeah? Yes, <laughs> we are acutely aware. And it took me to um, another aspect that you talk about is in your study of the segmentation of the labor market on communal lines. And this was also discussed extensively in our studio. And here you take the example of Seelampur and which it reveals that the formation and differences between a segregated enclaves. And I was wondering, uh, we, then we opened this question out also to the students also, whether it was an isolated case or many of them had not realized it until we actually started looking into your book. And it would be an isolated case or what did you feel that it would, and if it did manifest in the spatial planning? So that is how we were thinking about it as to how, what did you see in these five case studies? 
So, um, you know, this is something that I did not begin with looking at labor markets. So all I was interested in when I began my uh, writing my proposal for PhD, which is what the study was, I wanted to look at residential segregation and, uh, you know, what made it tick, basically, you know, because as far as housing discrimination and especially rental housing discrimination is concerned, there's a lot of media discourse about it. There are a lot of uh, stories in the journalistic accounts, uh, anecdotes about how it happens. Then there's, there is some research also on caste and communal um, you know, discrimination on in rental housing market. So that's where I was coming from. But by and by, you know, when I was looking at these neighborhoods and they are clustered, uh, well, not together, but to the margins of the city, so to say, geographical margins of the city, I started to look at mo in more detail as to whether these were similar to each other or there were some differences within, because for an outsider, you know, when you say, oh, a Muslim ghetto, uh, you kind of start imagining a dark, dingy, dangerous, dirty place. But for people who are residents there, that's how I try to use the theoretical frame of Le Ferre talking about, you know, representational spaces, how people are experiencing the spaces that they are occupying or that they are passing through, interacting with. So that's when I realized that there was within these segregated uh, neighborhoods, there was also a differentiation. And a lot of differentiation was based on class and occupation, and occupation being closely connected to the caste identities also uh, within Muslims. Okay. So once I noticed that, then to, to just follow that lead, follow that thread, to see that, you know, this is essentially how capitalism works. It works on a division of labor, it works on segmentation of labor markets, it works on the principle that it is going to be very difficult for people in one segment of labor market to move to another segment of uh, labor market. And it is that difficulty in mobility across labor market segmentation that allows for their incarceration in a particular segment and thereby their inability to, uh, for example, negotiate for better wages uh, and so on. And, and therefore, you know, accumulation. That's why, you know, then this thesis developed, you know, accumulation by segregation, which is, of course, as you know, is a play on David Harvey's thesis on uh, accumulation by dispossession. So segregation being one form of dispossession. Thank you. That was that was really insightful. I was also thinking about uh, when we discussed in our studio, they were being able to actually connect these kind of dots in their own city, which was also very interesting because one does not really um, primarily because we don't. Uh, your in your book itself, you you take the oral narratives of the common people who are residing in these localities and you are positioning their narratives along with all the theories that sociologists have actually put in. For instance, you cite Lefebvre um, and uh, Walter Benjamin, and who both talk about how uh, the modern spaces are increasingly produced. 
and not as spaces of work and production, but as spaces of commodification and consumption. It, it was in this light that I was kind of we were looking into uh, the Shah Janabad case where that, that was the other point we were discussing in the studio, that it has been designated as a special area in the Delhi Master Plan 2021. And that this was a big shift from its earlier status as a conservation area and how it would has affected its consumption or uh, how we end up turning these kind of neighborhoods into little museums and of objects for consumption and primarily for, for tourism. And as a tourist, I would be able to inhabit that particular space. And that is how I would perceive. But as local resident there, if I were to navigate, then the entire way in which I would be viewed would be completely different. So there's a, there's a particular way in which the policies are also made for consumption. This is, I was also referring uh, in the studio about the beautification drive that had gone in during the emergency, which is completely imposed. It was not participatory in any manner. I mean, and then the students could, who were from Lahore or from other states and where we have uh, cities like Ahmedabad, where I have seen that happen rampantly, uh, overnight, these kind of beautification schemes are done. So the objective is to make that particular space of historical value is for tourist consumption and for a spectacle. And uh, no thought is given to the original or the residents who have been living there. Somehow it is only in your narratives that I see their voices also where there are, there are speakers who, uh, residents who talk about how they were made uh, during the, the Britishers pushed them out of the Shah Janavad city, something like an exile. And then the partition happened, which compounded those kind of uh, the divide. And then comes the emergency also, which was more or less, I think, I feel as if it was almost like the last blow, where these residents could never really claim their original place of residence and they had to move out. So we actually create these kind of, um, whether the planners realize it or not, eat all these policies, laws we make and decisions that are taken higher up actually divide right. spaces. Right. So, you know, methodologically, because I'm a social worker, I wasn't really trained in so much, you know, social theory. And I mean, I had a lot of, if I were to put it more charitably, I had access to uh, any disciplinary method that I wanted to uh, use because, you know, social workers like any other professional training are taught, you know, a bit of this, a bit of that, you know, not nothing really well. I mean, in hindsight, it, it, it looks like, you know, it turned out to my advantage. So, you know, what really happened was, I, I again, uh, it was my respondents, the participants of my study that actually gave me this historical look into their experience of the city. So if I started asking them, you know, to, to anybody who is completely uninitiated about the geography of Delhi, uh, how would you explain the segregation? So, you know, I just begin with a really broad kind of question, which allowed them to say whatever they wanted to say. And in Shah Janabad, you know, almost everybody that I spoke to started with 1857. You know, their whole story would start from 1857. And I had literally no training in history. So I started digging up and I started reading up. And that's when, you know, I also understood while I'm, you know, kind of educating myself in geography, in history, in political science, 
I realized that uh, on one hand, my field work was showing me how the city was an aid to capital accumulation. And in uh, capital accumulation was a was an outcome which was which involved processes of not only you know market and uh, production uh, or relationships of production, but also that whole idea of urbanity and its connection with leisure was you know not as completely innocent and warm and fuzzy as I would like us to believe. And as a Muslim myself, you know, who's lived in these localities or have frequented other localities, I understood, you know, this whole uh, idea of Muslim slash Islamicate heritage on one hand being propped up uh, for consumption for its architectural beauty, etc., or for the culinary richness of whoever was interested in, and I'm talking about, you know, architectural heritage, architectural historical heritage, or other forms of cultural heritage, more intangible. And I realized that even those processes were impacted or were intricately connected to the process of capital accumulation, maybe not as directly, Maybe, you know, the economic determinism of these processes was not only thing. Of course, there was a materiality to them also, but that was not the only story. And it also happened because it, it you know, helped build the narrative about identities. And I would say, you know, it's a little bit more complicated than complete silencing of those who are powerless or deemed to be uh, powerless, less powerful, and uh, those who are in power in sense of uh, state power to potentially or actually brutalize citizens. So that brutal power, but also more subtle uh, hegemonic power over discourses that is there, you know, in terms of ordering the spaces as well. So it just doesn't come from stereotypes, but it actually comes from process of governance and and making of things such as master plans. So yes, you know, uh, Shahjanabad especially made me really look into those processes. But the idea of thrill-seeking tourist who goes into areas where, you know, not everybody would dare to go. I mean, that's how it is often uh, portrayed. And especially in North India, you know, Islamicate cultures, despite the fact that, uh, you know, there's so much negative stereotyping of Muslims, there is also another kind of stereotyping as Urdu and Muslim cultures being more refined. And so to partake into that culture is also for a certain kind of uh, co-citizen, so to say, to fashion themselves as more uh, discerning uh, citizens, more liberal and so on. So not to say that, you know, there's it shouldn't happen, that there's anything wrong, but as a social scientist, to know what's going on and to point yes. it out, you know. And in the subsequent chapters, you talk about how these uh, segregated enclaves that we have, like you looked into five localities, and uh, these segregated enclaves quickly would reach saturation levels. I have seen that happening in Ahmedabad, where I have lived quite long. And when I see your field studies in Nizamuddin, uh, Jamia Nagar, and also the Taj enclave, 
you state that these boundaries are flexible uh, and yet the confinement cannot be shattered. And it is so disturbing. And also uh, many a times I feel it's very sad that these boundaries, first of all, exist between uh, communities and there is these boundaries which are there. And uh, you say that it is flexible, but the, the tragic part of it that it, we can't really break it. So I wonder as to, um, can we discuss this? You know, uh, the thing is that uh, when we take a look at, you know, Leferre's framework, he also talks about the discourses within professional circuits, such as, let's say, for example, social work or planning, etc., about, how, you know, what is going on, what kind of processes are going on. And what is disturbing to me is actually that there is a whole stereotype that it is only Muslims who are separated and segregated from rest of the you know, society. And it seems that there are Muslim areas and the rest of the city's mixed areas. And this is something that I think a lot of Muslims also suffer from, you know, this uh, mistaken notion True, that absolutely. we want to go and live in mixed localities. What are mixed localities? Now, actually, we don't have any harsh, mixed localities, do we? Yeah, the harsh truth about India actually is that all of us, different communities, whether it is Muslim or other communities, we live segregated lives. We True, live absolutely. pretty much separated from each other. And we take great pains at separating ourselves and, you know, uh, putting ourselves on the map in a certain manner. And it says something about, you know, who we are because of where we come from or where we are going to or at least intend going to, you know. So the aspirations are also about that. Now, what I've also realized is that uh, the city, uh, you know, always also makes a promise of emancipation from being incarcerated into your own identities, whether socially or politically or spatially, etc. So when, for example, B.R. Ambedkar actually told the scheduled caste people to move from villages to, to urban areas, the idea was that the anonymity in the urban areas, there was a possibility in that urban migration to somehow go through some kind of portal where you're able to actually leave your caste behind or whatever is the disadvantaged identity, can you leave that behind and then make a move to fuller humanity? But it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And we live in actually increasingly even more segregated lives. Uh, and people are segregating themselves on different lines. My favorite example is that if ghettoization uh, meant that people be belonging to a certain identity or only live together, then why is Jamia Nagar a ghetto? But for example, those who know their you know, map of Delhi, they'll know um, CR Park, which is actually a locality of uh, uh, upper class, upper caste, Hindu, Bengalis, uh, right? Why is that not a ghetto? Because it is, you know, a concentration of a particular identity. Now, what makes a locality suitable or eligible to be labeled pejoratively as a ghetto is that certain kind of minorities who are looked down upon by the rest of the city, the undesirables, that's when it gets labeled a ghetto. But what I actually, in the book, as you know, challenge the use of 
uh, ghetto for any segregated locality. You know, many scholars before me have uh, said that this is basically a lazy kind of categorization of using one concept which had a hist- which has a historical significance uh, was used in historically specific circumstances for certain kind of partial uh, concentration is just picked up and then applied to other neighborhoods where it may or may not apply european uh, jewish ghettos were a historically uh, you know specific phenomena and the so-called Muslim ghettos in India, uh, North India, I should say, are not really spaces where similar processes are happening. For one, they are not really segregated from global production uh, networks, for example. Yes. Uh, there is a lot of production activity, uh, services that are being produced in these areas, which actually connects them intricately with global production networks, although at adverse terms, yes. But that happens to, you know, in uh, all, for those uh, in of, all yeah. segregated uh, in all, So it's like, for example, India itself, you know, in the globalized uh, order is integrated into global economy as a hub of cheap labor, etc., etc. Those are adverse terms, right? Yes. Uh, so, so, so therefore, you know, I challenge the term get in the subsequent chapters, you talk about media representation and how we, we perceive and how it is our perceptions are also constructed. And towards the end, in your concluding chapter, you put forth uh, three interfaces through which the problematic involved in envisioning the ideal Delhi is framed. Could you explain to us again uh, the interfaces that you have deduced because the, the, the idea of um, Delhi being the capital we have all across this nation, we have, um, we have our own capital in our minds. I mean, Delhi is a very, um, the center, Whether we, even if those who have not visited Delhi, there are many who have never been to Delhi, but there, the, the, the capital exists. And we have a, a rather uh, very different uh, views of the city. I was wondering if you could uh, explain the, interfaces that you have kind of mentioned in your concluding chapter. Right. So I guess, you know, what I learned from conducting this study is that there are there are all kinds of typologies are actually developed on one aspect of whatever phenomena that you're studying, uh, which is more highlighted in maybe that space. So you, you know, kind of put it in that kind of category because that's what you see that's what something that hits you when you see it for the first time. But essentially, you know, similar kind of processes are happening in maybe every city. What gets more highlighted is whatever is specific to the history and geography and political economy of that particular city. So this idea that Delhi is the seat of power, it has been a seat of power for many centuries now for the independent India, but also for uh, the entire South Asia for a very long time. But let's say, for example, other port cities in India, like uh, Chennai or, uh, you know, Mumbai, for example, or, you know, other ports cities. Uh, it is it is the geopolitical uh, significance of the city that also has, uh, you know, this kind of impact on the experiences of people. 
and in delhi uh, the government you know and one is that there is in proliferation of government we not only have municipalities and state government but we have the central government uh, sitting there and the whole governance structure of delhi is that there is so much contestations between you know different centers of power pulling and pushing uh, um, uh, amongst themselves so i started also thinking about the whole idea of citizenship and how a citizen uh, the image of a citizen is, is construed through processes of governance on one hand and capitalism on the other hand so it's not just the markets but it is also uh, the state and you know its monopoly especially its monopoly over use of violence this is you know i mean political science 101 on how citizenship has actually not really remained just a membership to a political community but based on your capacity to consume based upon your uh, positioning in the class structure of the society and and of course also the social and cultural fabric of the uh, national community uh, you get to experience and exercise citizenship either in deficit or in you know sort of surplus so some people have surplus citizenship and some people <laughs> have uh, experienced the citizenship in in deficit and it was media discourses that actually got my attention focused to it and by media i, I mean yes you know bollywood and popular culture and all the stereotypes about muslims and in that but i also you know because uh, uh just as i was beginning my work butler house encounter had taken place so my uh, attention was also focused on policing practices and uh, state violence which is also manifested specially uh, and state violence itself the narrative of state violence and how it is justified produces a narrative about certain spaces so i take the the media reportage of such uh, examples of state violence including overt custodial violence or police violence but on the other hand uh, also discursive violence and other kind of violence for example even planning practices can be pretty violent yes, in terms of dispossessing uh, you know uh, populations Yes. so i trained my attention to that uh, in 2006 when there were uh, ceilings of uh, commercial uh, enterprises in delhi owing to the uh, delhi high court's uh, order of uh, not allowing uh, you know mixed land mixed use wherever uh, the plan did not allow it uh there was a huge uh, you know protest by delhi traders uh, association and uh, the story of that protest and the outcome of that protest because there was a lot of violence it happened in one of the muslim neighborhoods that is silampur which was actually not as affected by this phenomena of ceiling violence by the protesters had happened at many other places in the city but police actually fired on a group of protesters only in silampur and then you know people actually died as a result of it chila dikshit government was actually able to go to the high court and say we cannot implement your order because of because a law order situation will arise and they brought out a legislation in delhi assembly delhi master plan was changed 
owing to that you know incidents of violence and then they allowed for changed land use in certain areas in delhi so this use of state's monopoly over violence to not only uh, limit you know experience of citizenship of certain undesirables as i call them uh, but also to order the space of the city and to uh, do it in a manner that it uh, disadvantages people who are already at a disadvantage in favor of spaces that are or communities or identities that are already experiencing a surplus of capital accumulation and a surplus of as i say citizenship experience yeah thank you so much and but before uh, we stop i would like to read out uh, to the listeners the, the concluding lines uh, from your vision for an ideal city and that's how uh, you uh, finish your book but um, primarily because it reminded me of uh, the uh, the 15th century radical poet uh, ravidas poem begampura and somehow it i connected it uh, with the last concluding passage uh, with wow. his poem and uh, i'm just reading out her lines the ideal city comprises of persons and collectivities who share an inalienable humanity and not just of people marked as islands by their individuality in the ideal city differences do not need insularity and each dweller belongs thank you so much uh, for this poignant statement uh, to end this uh, this wonderful uh, research uh, text and i would like to thank uh, professor gazana again uh, for sharing thank her valuable time with me thank you so much thank you hope you enjoyed this episode do not miss to like share and subscribe to our podcast available on all your favorite podcast apps